Facebook can be a scary place, as many of you know. Some of you are scary on Facebook, but um, anyway. If Narcissus was here now, he would be staring at a screen, not into a pool. Guess me first, which I have here. This book is the first book that I know of to really explore the darker side of our online lives. It asks the big question, who am I? And leaves the reader wondering, who are you? This is the book that everybody's going to be reading and talking about this summer. It's Lottie Mogga's first novel tonight. It's her first reading. She's nervous, so make her feel really welcome. Please welcome Lottie Mogga. Narrated by Layla, who is a solitary, um, over-literal 22-year-old with very little life experience, um, who spends 16 hours a day in front of her computer. Through an online philosophy forum, she meets up with uh, a woman called Tess, who is older, she's in her late 30s, troubled, and um, has had a long-held desire to kill herself, but has been prevented by doing so because of the hurt it will cause her friends and family. But when she comes into contact with Layla, an audacious plan is hatched in which Layla will take over Tess's online life so that Tess can commit suicide without anyone knowing she's gone. The plan is that Tess will tell her loved ones that she's gone abroad to live on a remote island in Canada, whereupon she will slip away and dispose of herself and Layla will take up the reins of her virtual life, pretending to be her from Canada. So answering her emails, updating her Facebook page for an indefinite period of time. Um, and you won't be surprised to hear that this plan does not go entirely smoothly. Uh, the section I'm going to read comes from the preparation stage of the process in which Layla has to learn all she can about Tess in order to later impersonate her, but is, uh, has trouble getting to grips with Tess's rather flaky personality and her complicated past. Is that all, sound-wise, is that, is that all right? Okay, okay. I started a series of timeline charts to plot events in Tess's life. One was for major events, which I defined as the things her parents would be aware of. Job changes, flat moves, her grandfather's death, her brother's wedding, and the births of his children. Another was for those things that was likely her family did not know about. Random encounters with men, arguments with friends, drug-taking, and so forth. For each event, I had a column listing the people who, as far as I was aware, knew about it, what exactly they knew, and what their thoughts on it were, as far as I could gather. As you can imagine, all this took a lot of time. Tessa's life had been chaotic, and as, qui and as quickly became clear, she told different versions of events to different people. Add to that the fact that she was vague on names and locations, and you can imagine the difficulty. There were many things that didn't make sense or add up. Some were fairly major facts. In one month, for instance, she claimed to different people to live in both Shoreditch and Bethnal Green, although there was no record of her moving. There were minor references that could be solved by Google. Farrow and Ball, the Groucho Club, that house Virginia Woolf lived in, but others that could not. For instance, in one email, she described a woman as having national theatre hair. <laughs> In another, she told her friend Simon how much she liked the way boys take their jumpers off. In other cases, the facts themselves were clear, but I couldn't understand her reaction to them. For instance, an exchange on the 17th of August 2005 between Tess and a friend called Xanthi. 
They were having an argument because Xanthi had apparently been staying at Tess's flat for a weekend and had thrown away some dead flowers that Tess had been saving because of their beauty. Tess seemed to think that Xanthi not realising this was indicative of a lack of understanding of Tess's character and what she called the poetry of life and declared that Xanthi could no longer be her friend. Odd behaviour in itself, but then, two weeks later, the two were emailing merrily as if nothing had ever happened. When I asked Tess about these things, more often than not she couldn't remember the details or even that they took place at all. I told you, she wrote, my brain is fucked. Once, she elaborated. I'll tell you what it's like. You know those grabby mechanical hands in amusement arcades, which you use to try and pick up some shitty teddy bear? It's like me, feebly trying to latch onto a memory or an idea. And if I do manage to grab it, it's just cheap tat. Furthermore, there were lots of blank periods to fill in, the times when she wasn't communicating with anyone at all, when, as I know now, she was seriously depressed and couldn't even summon the energy to wipe the hair off her face, let alone write an email. Alongside all this, I was making a note of the non-personal emails Tess received. There were receipts for theatre and cinema tickets and Amazon purchases, all of which I catalogued in a file about her tastes. She did a lot of online shopping, and the things she bought tended to be either bafflingly expensive, a single pair of knickers that cost £230, or cheap, like a 20p vintage coaster from eBay. There were days when she spent vast amounts of money, thousands of pounds, on things that it didn't seem like she could possibly need or in bewildering bulk. One receipt, I remember, was for 20 white tea towels, each costing £12. With each of these, I recorded the date and details of the transaction in a separate spreadsheet. How could she afford a £120 pot of moisturiser when she was working as an artist model, earning £60 a week? I would then cross-reference her online bank statements to see whether she had taken out a loan or gone overdrawn. My initial trawl through her inbox left me with a lengthy list of questions to ask Tess, and the large holes in her biography took first priority. Her replies were more often than not unsatisfactory. I would ask a perfectly simple question, such as what TV shows she watched when she was 13, and she either wouldn't reply for days, or get angry and say she couldn't remember, or name a program that, when I checked, turned out to have been first transmitted when she was 15. I tried hard to remain professional in our emails, but sometimes firmness was required. I would remind her of the seriousness of the undertaking and my requirements for the job. In reply, she'd write, Oh God, don't have a go at me, I can't remember. Or, if she is in a sadder, more reflective mood, she'd apologise repeatedly, saying what a terrible person she was and that she didn't deserve my help. After a few weeks, I became quite frustrated. Tess kept going on about how quickly she wanted it all to be done, how desperate she was to check out. That was the phrase we used. But it had become apparent that if we kept going at this current rate, with her taking days to respond to an email and then not even answering my questions properly, it would be months before we were anywhere near ready. So I had an idea. We had agreed not to meet in person, but there seemed to be no reason why we couldn't talk. It would speed things up considerably. I messaged Tess to suggest this, and she agreed. We arranged a time for me to call at 11pm one evening. I composed a list of questions that had arisen so far. 1. In an email dated the 27th of December 2008, 
your brother William wrote, thank you for ruining lunch. What did you do to ruin lunch, and why is he thanking you? (laughs) Two, did you ever meet up with Pete the Provider on Valentine's Day 2006 in St. Wenceslas Square, as promised in an email sent the previous year? Three, was the nickname Sugar Tits widely used, or just by Stephen (laughs) Gateman? Four, what is your father's prognosis for Alzheimer's? Five, in one email regarding a date with a man called Jamie, you wrote, he was intellectually beneath me, yet you only got one A-level yourself in art. (laughs) What kind of qualifications did he get? Six, there are no emails or trace of you between February and April 2008. Where were you and what were you doing during that time? Seven. At various points, you claim that You're Nobody Till Someone Loves You by Dinah Washington, Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin, and I Want You Back by the Jackson 5 are all your favourite song ever. (laughs) Which one is it? Eight. In an email to Shona regarding a dinner party you attended the night before, you write that you hated your host for claiming she liked to cook to relax. This seems like an inoffensive statement to me. Can you explain? Nine. In May 2008, you wrote to Myra Stolbach that you couldn't wait to attend her wedding that summer. But then, in an email to Justine on June the 2nd of that same year, you wrote that you hate fucking weddings. Can you explain? Ten. Your sign-offs are inconsistent, even in correspondence with the same person. Sometimes you'll end with one kiss, sometimes two, sometimes many, and sometimes none. What are the rules governing your sign-offs? Do they change according to the level of affection you feel for that person at that particular moment? And 12. In an email to joe at samaritans.org on the 17th of September, 2010, you wrote that you didn't think you were going to make it through the night. Did you attempt suicide that evening? I was oddly nervous before speaking to Tess the first time. You have to understand that by that point, I had spent three weeks completely immersed in her life, reading her emails, examining photographs of her and her friends, trying to catalogue the chaos of her past. Looking back, even at that early stage, I probably knew more about her than anyone else alive because she gave such different accounts of herself to different people. But because everything had been done electronically, it was almost like she wasn't a real person. It was 11 p.m. on a Tuesday, I had my list of questions ready. Tess's phone rang eight times before finally she answered. See? (laughs) Done. See? Done. Very good. that's going to be the first reading of, of many. And as I said, it is a book that everybody's going to be talking about. Um, when I was reading it, and I read it in one setting, it reminded me um, a lot of kind of, so the, t- the, the talented Mr. Ripley, the sense of ass- assuming an identity. And also, um, uh, Faye Weldon, you know, and Life and Love's a Machine mm. Devil, there was, there was a lot of that as well. So it was, but it's wholly original in and of itself. Um, I think, first of all, we should probably start with the... I mean, obviously, Layla's somewhere on the spectrum. Mm, mm. Um, and she is a difficult... She's a difficult narrator to deal with, isn't mm. she? Um, because we don't... I don't like her. 
Yeah. So how do you start off with that premise? <laughs> I really wanted to Lean closer sorry, to put someone centre stage who doesn't usually get much attention in novels or indeed in life because they're not out, they're at home in front of a computer, they can't relate to people very well. And I was very stubborn about this, even when several agents thought it was a terrible idea and several publishers thought it was a terrible idea. Um, but it did cause a lot of problems because she's not particularly likeable and also she's a literal stodgy person and telling a story through her eyes obviously runs the risk of writing an extremely boring book. So that's what I spent most Which of the work not, on. Which is not, I don't want to But I was, I was just, I, I, I clung to it. Even, like I say, even though several people said it wasn't a... How long were you writing make it Tess for? the main character, because she's sexy. But, um, but I think Tess is very wearing, actually. Mm. I think Tess thinks she's sexy, and I think that's the thing that's annoying about mm. her. Um, she's very self-consciously sexy. Um, and she's, I, I don't think she has half probably of the soul that, that, that Layla has, mm. but they're two very interesting characters to put together in, in a, a novel. Mm. But I just want to know, what, just pull back a second mm. to the idea of wh- where it came from, this idea of our kind of online persona, because we could, you know, we could talk about Judith Butler and performativity, but let's just think about Facebook and people talking mm. shit. Um, well, it, it, um, it, the idea came to me in 2007 when I went freelance and I had a lot of time in my hands, I was a very bad freelance, and spent a lot of time on Facebook and I think it was still vague novelty in 2007 but it felt like everything was happening on it, sorry, felt like everything was happening on it and as the months dripped on I realised that I was actually probably enjoying the simulation of life on Facebook more than, it was more alluring than the actual, the prospect of actually meeting people and talking to them because you know spontaneous conversation, it's unreliable, you can't control it in the way you can with Facebook and after all on Facebook you already know everything you could possibly want to know about anyone and more um, from everything they posted so the thought of actually meeting people in the flesh didn't appeal particularly um, and I thought many of these friends I have on Facebook I could probably not see for months and I, and I wouldn't know. And was the persona that you were constructing online at that point for yourself consonant with who you thought you were or were you trying out being somebody else? Yeah, well, I, I didn't very, post very much on Facebook. I, I had a very unhealthy relationship. I just lurked mainly and just like gawped other people <laughs> and I was too self-conscious to post. So I think it's, it wasn't, uh, it felt very, very warrioristic. But, but you're right, you are who you pretend to be on, online. And that's another thing, you know, no, it's like a newspaper where you are the editor, proprietor, journalist and the subject of every story. You have control over the image you present, so that was another, those two ideas fused. So it's the idea of an authored self, a, pre- a mm. presented self. Mm. Um, so uh, Leila gets the job via a website called Red Pill. Mm. Tell us about that. Red Pill is a online philosophy forum uh, libertarian philosophy forum and they're actually quite, it's not such a big deal here but in America there are lots of these sites, more than you'd expect once you start looking and full of very earnest teenagers debating the nature of truth and and part of me finds it very heartening that people are doing this rather than downloading you know, Justin Bieber, this is how they're choosing, <laughs> choosing to spend their online life but um, it does seem to attract a, a certain type of internet obsessive um, and the name is a reference to the matrix uh, the matrix yeah and it's you know if you want to if you want to know the truth then join us and if you want to be you know deluded and carry on in this you know you, anyway anyone who's seen the matrix knows what 
those pills mean. But yes, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing which appeals to a certain teenage mindset. So the difficult, I mean, it's very difficult because I don't want to give away the ending because the, the ending or what the ending might or might not be is the thing that kept me going until the very end. We'll talk about that after. Um, I have some questions. But did, did you, without revealing what it is, mm. did you write different endings, multiple endings, before deciding on one? Or has this always been the ending that you wanted it to be? Um, I did write several endings, but um, and this one isn't as bleak as the first ones were because a book about suicide obviously it's um anyway, anyway I, I have a it's not a book about suicide suicide not. is a plot device it is a, plot, it is it's a, a book about device. identity it is I'm it telling is. you what her own book is no 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'd love you to see this <laughs> 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 um, but um yes uh, yeah, again without trying yes I wanted to to end on a slightly more upbeat note than than someone having just killed themselves which is what it ended on originally okay um so, and it's also very visual, and I was just going to ask you very quickly if it had been optioned or not, because it does feel quite like something I could see on the telly. Oh, it'd be lovely. Well, people talk about it, but no one um, has... Sorry, I'm sorry. First microphone, sorry. <laughs> um, I think uh, it's difficult, difficult knowing how to represent on a mainly online relationship, because the two women, Layla and Tess, never actually meet. So I think people don't really know how to... I don't blame them. They don't yeah. really know how to do that on screen. I'm, actually, just I, the first time I've seen that done well was in ha- the new House of Cards adaptation, oh, where really? they where they get text messages and emails from each other, and they they pop mm. up on screen and you see their reactions. You know, they're in their lives, and then they get the they get the message. Oh, well, um, Char- Charlie Brooker's thing, they, he tried to do it too, and that was I think semi-successful. So yeah. I think I think you just need someone who's quite imaginative, and I'm not that person, and I think they haven't quite found that person yet, but okay. but hopefully. Hopefully they will. And you talked about having been a journalist before and then, and then mm. sort of writing. Was that a difficult gear change for you to make, or did you, or was it even a conscious gear change? Um, well, I've wanted to. I've been writing for a long time. I mean, unsuccessfully, several books which never got off the ground. Um, and so, I've I've managed to incorporate it with journalism for for quite a long time. And uh, it was it was okay. I think I know. I think proper writers, some proper writers, find it. <coughs> difficult to switch between the two because they immerse themselves but I, I never I don't <laughs> think I'm so a proper writer I think I just, you are but, um, it, yeah, no, it's I, a proper it, book oh thank you it, it didn't feel that difficult but maybe it's because I also didn't have that much journalism because as I say I was a terrible a bad freelancer <laughs> that I might let you have <laughs> um, and so you're you're the daughter of Deborah Morgan mm. so what what was it like kind of well, growing up in a house you know with, with with a writer, did you ever feel like you might have had any other career possibilities? There was or? no no option. <laughs> but that, that was, she made it seem really wonderful because she never uh, she wrote when I we were at school, so we never actually saw her working. She's very happy, she's very unneurotic, she's successful, yeah. and all these things which, when I started doing it, I realised weren't the norm. And in fact, <laughs> in fact, most writers find exactly the opposite. So I sort of want to sue her for misrepresentation. <laughs> but, um, by the time, and she also loves writing. So I, when I first started and I found writing very hard, I thought that maybe I wasn't cut out to do it because the image I had was her, you know, rushing to do it. Like, you know, for her, she has to do it every day. She's, and I, I, I'm not like that. So it did, for a few years, I thought that maybe it wasn't, wasn't for me. But... Um, and how was it like being the you know the daughter of? Is that something that you worry is going to kind of tail you, or is that something well, that you're all right with? I'm I'm okay because she's uh, she's not. I mean, it's not like a Pippa Middleton. You know, it's it's not um, certainly not that. <laughs> but she's not. I mean, she's not that well known for a start. But um, she kind of is. 
I think most people in Neshem know who she is. Yeah. Yeah. Who she is. She's been. That's not a roundabout way of me trying to say your book only got published because you were doing damn well, because I really don't feel that. No, well, I, th- I think book. I mean, you know the industry. I think yeah. books don't get published because, unless you're Pippa Middleton, they yeah. don't get published because of your family connections, but it certainly doesn't help. You know, it doesn't hurt when you're. Submitting it, but people, it's a very do, people different do want to read it, which is a huge. I mean, that's a huge advantage, and I do recognise that. Um, it's you know, people, you know, that people have read it. Whereas, I imagine you know, sending books out into the slush pile, and you don't know what's happened. So, so that I was very grateful for that yes. aspect. Uh, but it's also a very different kind of. I mean, I couldn't ever imagine your mother writing that kind no. of book or well, spending she, that much time on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. When she she does when she works, she sits down. What for does four she think hours. of it? Oh, she well, she's very. I think she's just so delighted that it's published because she would have to deal with me with it not being <laughs> <laughs> not the relief I think she felt when she realised she wouldn't have had me having five years of depression that uh, my book hadn't been done. So she's yeah, she's ecstatic about the whole thing. Good. I'm going to take some questions now. Yeah. Of course, Sylvia's hand is up. There you are. Yeah, I mean, you in the in the end, having been rejected for other mm. things and having persisted with this idea, mm. um, with this quite difficult central character, in mm. the end, eleven publishers were bidding mm. for it. What was that experience like? God, well, it was. Um, it and was. And in other countries, says <laughs> Susie from the front row. There, yes, thank you. Um, it was. It was in July last summer, and as I say, after a long time of nothing happening with this book, and it could ease, and you know, I'd slightly. This was the last push, and. I, ha- I got a new agent who made one tiny structural change to the book, which some un- somehow unlocked it. I d- he just puts he puts a prologue in, which suddenly there was interest where there hadn't been any before, and it happened all happened extremely quickly. I was heavily pregnant at the time, and I actually got my I signed the book deal in the same week I gave birth. So the whole thing was extremely intense. I had to, <laughs> I had to keep on painting woodwork because I was doing up my house at the time to try and calm down, to get my blood pressure down. <laughs> painting door frames, just trying to... So it, it was an extraordinary week, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll never happen again. I mean, I, my agent said this will... This is not typical. This will never happen again. So, so I did try and appreciate it at the time. Was it um, a one-book deal or a two-book deal? It's a one-book deal. Okay. So it might happen again. I'll take one more question. <laughs> And if everyone doesn't have it, I certainly do. So I want to ask you yeah. what you're writing now. I am writing a book. Um, so you are writing a I am writing a book. Well, yeah. <laughs> no journalism anymore. I've got no... There's no no one who's any journalism anymore. No. Um, I'm writing a book about um, my two obsessions, property and, well, alcohol. These, this book. About exploring these <laughs> two things. Middle, middle class obsession. <laughs> um, and set in Spain. So and, and it's set in Spain. Yeah. So <laughs> there's so much to think about yeah. there. Please join me in thanking Lottie Morga. Thank well done.